Are you ready? All right. I'm done talking about giving and generosity for a while. We'll come back to that in the future, of course, but I still want to talk about faith. And before we go on into the things that I'm going to be talking about in the next few months, I, I need to address faith in general and faith and doubt and how we handle our moods and emotions versus our faith. And I've done that before, but I'm going to come at it from a completely different direction today, something I've never done before. It was actually very difficult for service to get it out, to put it in language. But I got lots of thank yous, and so we'll see how many of you identify with this this morning too. So the picture on the screen is C.S. Lewis. So I suppose most of you at least know him as the author of The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, The Chronicles of Narnia, Stories. He's a very famous Christian author. He was a professor at Oxford University. He was born in 1898 in Ireland, raised in a nominally Christian home because everybody in Ireland is Catholic, you know, or Episcopal. So raised nominally Christian. He said he had a great childhood, but his mom died when he was nine. And his dad kind of went off the deep end when that happened, and so he and his brother were sent off to a boarding school to finish their schooling. The school was very rough situation. Again, people claiming to be Christians did not treat him very right. Uh, eventually, after he graduated years later, the headmaster was actually put away in an insane asylum, so he must not have been the best man to lead that school, but that's how he grew up. His dad became increasingly distant and and volatile in his childhood and he said that he would try to pray as a child but he was if you know his writing you know he's a very deep thinker he's incredibly intelligent Uh, he said even as a child he had a very hard time praying because he would begin to pray and he decided that if he was talking to the god of the universe he probably needed to get it exactly right and so he would never be able to pray because he'd start and he'd well that isn't right and he'd overthink it and then he'd freeze up and not be able to pray so by the age of 17 he wrote this in a letter quote i believe in no religion there is absolutely no proof for any of them and from a philosophical standpoint christianity is not even the best he became a convinced atheist even in his teens but it got worse when he was drafted into the army in world war one and he lived through the hell of the trenches in france he was wounded in the war and he was so traumatized by the terror that was World War I that he was completely sure that there was no God. And he wrote, if God designed this world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. He believed life had no meaning, and he said that, that uh, his philosophy was, quote, unyielding despair. Nearly all I loved I believed to be imaginary, And nearly all that I believed to be real, I thought was grim and meaningless. Everyone that knew him said that he was riotously funny. But he was, in his philosophy of life and his outlook on existence, he was very dark. He was brilliant enough that he was an Oxford professor in his 20s. Later on in life, he moved to Cambridge University, but he's an Oxford professor in his late 20s. So obviously he's very intelligent. And uh, he was well-read. In his 
staunch atheism in his late 20s as a professor, of course, graduate school and all, he reads everything there is to read. And he began to notice that all of the authors that he liked were Christian. Milton and Spencer and Johnson and MacDonald and the authors like Voltaire and Sartre and Shaw and of these others that were staunch atheists, he thought that their ideas were, in his words, thin and tinny. They didn't make any sense. They didn't hold water. He was especially drawn to G.K. Chesterton, who was a contemporary. He was a Catholic. He was a writer in the newspapers of the day in England. And he began to feel that, in his words, quote, Christianity was very sensible apart from its Christianity. Those Christians have great ideas except for Christianity. So it began to disturb his atheism that he agreed more with Christian authors than non-Christian authors. And then becomes this famous friendship between him and J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien is a Catholic believer who's also a professor at, I believe he was at Cambridge. And they had a little group of friends that would meet at the pub uh, and discuss literary things. They called themselves the Inklings. When I was there in Oxford, I sat at that table and had a spiritual experience. It was, well, it was awesome. To sit where Tolkien and Lewis sat and discussed literary things for an English major in Oxford, it was, it was pretty wonderful. So Tolkien is a believer, and they have these conversations, and some of the other professors, of course, were there are other names, but not as readily recognizable. But they began to work on him, and he would discuss with them. And, and by 1929, when he is 31 years old, he said, I relented and... I submitted myself to the fact that God had to exist. And he said, quote, I was the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England, which I just love because it shows that it was completely real and honest. There was no emotion. There was no moment. It was, I have weighed the evidence and I have come to rational faith and I have to reject everything I have thought and taught. I have to be honest and humble. There has to be a God. I just, I love his words. He's the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. But he still had struggles wrapping his mind around the fact that Jesus could be the Son of God. He, he came to reject his atheism and believe that God was real, had to be real, but he had problems with the miracles in the Bible. Uh, Old Testament and New Testament, the fact that God would become a man and live in the flesh in Jesus Christ. And he couldn't wrap his mind around that. He continued to tell Tolkien that the miracle stories have to be myths. They have to be myths they, because that doesn't happen. And Tolkien kept telling him they can be real and it is real history and, and it is true. They continued this discussion and in 1931, uh, two years after he rejected his atheism and admitted a belief, submitted to a belief in God, in 1931 there is a famous story of a dinner with Tolkien and a couple of other men and they had dinner and then they had a cigar after dinner and then they went for a walk in the park and in this walk, there's a conversation that Lewis records between him and Tolkien where Tolkien made a huge impression on his mind that Jesus Christ could be the Son of God. And two days later, Lewis says, I went for a motorcycle ride. And when I left, 
I did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God in the flesh. And when I arrived where I was going, I did believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, which is rock-solid proof that Jesus wants us to ride motorcycles. Amen. Absolutely, all the writers said amen. Yeah, no question, Jesus is a biker. C.S. Lewis put faith in Jesus Christ on his motorcycle ride in 1931, And a friend describes him later as the most thoroughly converted man I ever saw. Lewis put it this way, quote, I went from an unsmiling concentration on myself to being taken out of myself to love God and others. It was not just a a rational intellectual conversion, although it was, absolutely. It changed his heart, and he said, I began to love God, and I began to love others. Another writer who's writing about the life of Lewis said, it's not so much dramatic changes in his life as dramatic, dramatic changes in the man. He became the most thoroughly converted man I ever met, one friend says. And then his journey from atheist to the most reluctant convert, in England, to the most influential writer since the Apostle Paul in Christianity, shocked even himself. So Lewis is famous for lots of his writings. I I suppose that mostly it's going to be the Chronicles of Narnia that are the most famous. But seven years after he became a Christian, still as a professor at Oxford, publicly speaking up for Christianity, for Jesus, invited groups of students over to his house nearly on a nightly basis and were discussing Christianity, Jesus, the Bible, led many, many students at Oxford to the Lord uh, in the 1930s. In 1939, the Nazis invaded Poland and World War II began. It would be two and a half more years before we got involved. Uh, as Americans, but the war started, World War II started in 1939, so eight years after Lewis became a Christian. He was already so famous as a public speaker and author and Christian intellectual that the BBC and the British government asked him to give radio lectures uh, to the British public on Christianity to improve morale while the Germans bombed the country. What a novel thought to turn to God during war. It's just... It's amazing. So, I don't know how often it was, but maybe weekly, Lewis would have a radio show where he would teach the basic doctrines and theology of Christianity to the British people during the war. And after the war, those radio show lectures were compiled into a book called Mere Christianity, which probably a lot of you have read. Uh, If you haven't, you need to. People in almost every denomination would say that it is by far the the most succinct and clear and brilliant presentation of what Christianity is outside the Bible. And I want to read something to you from that book about faith. So we've been talking about faith, and in this section, he's talking about faith and our reason and our rational mind and our faith versus our moods, our emotions, the swings that happen in life, the temptations that come and rock our faith. And he says that our fears and our emotions and our moods do not cancel our faith. And his example that he uses is going to surgery and having to be put under anesthesia. And he says, I understand anesthesia. I know what it is. I know how it works. I know that the man who's 
giving me anesthesia knows how it works and what he's doing, and I know nothing bad will happen. But when they put the mask on my face, I get very afraid. Right? I've never been through surgery, but a whole bunch of you have. And his example, I can understand it even though I haven't lived it because I would be very afraid. I've thought that through before. He says, I have understanding and I have faith of anesthesia. I know what it is. I know how it works. But when it comes time to actually do it on me, I get afraid. That doesn't mean I don't understand, and it doesn't mean it isn't going to work. I just feel, he says, childish emotion and imagination take over. Okay, so he, then he says, I, the same thing happens in our Christianity. He says, I'm not asking anyone to accept Christianity if your best reasoning tells you that the weight of evidence is against it. That's not the point at which faith comes in. But suppose that a man's reason decides that the weight of evidence is for it. So he says, I want to talk to you who have already decided that Christianity is right and real and I put my faith in Jesus Christ. He says, I can tell you what's going to happen in the next few weeks. There will come a moment, there is bad news, or you're in trouble, or you're living among a lot of other people who do not believe at all. And all of your emotions will rise up and carry out a sort of blitz on your belief. Or else there will come a moment when a man wants a woman, or wants to tell a lie, or feels very pleased with himself, or sees a chance of making a little money in some way that's not perfectly fair. Some moment, in fact, at which it would be very convenient if Christianity were not true. And once again, his wishes and desires will carry out a blitz on his faith. Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has accepted in spite of your changing moods. Let me read that again. Faith is the art of holding on to things that your reason has accepted in spite of your changing moods. Let's hear that again. Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has accepted in spite of your changing moods, because moods will change. Whatever view your reason takes, I know that by experience. Now that I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks terribly improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. The rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come anyway. This is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they can get off, you can never be either a sound Christian nor a sound atheist. Just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather or your state of digestion. Consequently, one must train the habit of faith. Now that I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist... I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. The rebellion of your moods against your real faith is going to come anyway. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they can get off, you can never be either a sound Christian nor a sound atheist. You will just be a creature dithering to and fro with your beliefs really dependent on the weather and your digestion. It's the way only C.S. Lewis can put it. C.S. Lewis says, Now that I'm a Christian, I do have moments when I wonder if any of it is true. But when I was a convinced atheist, Christianity sometimes looked pretty good. 
So he's realizing that the fact that he has put his faith in Jesus Christ, but now I have questions or doubts, that does not cancel my faith because I've made a decision. I know this is true. And in calmer moments, I knew it was true. So the fact that I have a mood today or a swing or an emotion or a, an offense or a wondering or a doubt, a new thought, does not cancel out my faith any more than my fear of the anesthesiologist's mask uh, cancels out how it works. It's all right. I want to talk to you this morning about doubt, intellectual or emotional or spiritual doubt. I think a lot of times we get uh, maybe some bad ideas about what we can ask God about and what we can admit out loud because we come to church and there's there's cliches and there's standard answers and there's things we're supposed to say and so we say it and we're supposed to say amen so we do and and I want to talk to you this morning about what Lewis says there's sometimes I have moments when the whole thing I wonder if the whole thing is real at all Alfred Tennyson, who's an English poet from the 1800s, is the son of a pastor, and he was a believer all of his life, but he had a journey that he had to live out. He wrote poems that you're probably familiar with, maybe The Lady of Shalott or Crossing the Bar or The Charge of the Light Brigade, but he wrote a book-length poem called In Memoriam uh, on the death of a friend at a very young age. And there's a passage in there that you may have come across before, and we're going to look at it. You tell me doubt is devil-born. You tell me that, my, that if I have doubts, that's from the devil. He says, I'm not quite convinced about that. You tell me doubt is devil-born. I know not. One indeed I knew, in many a subtle question versed, who touched a jarring liar at first, but ever strove to make it true. Perplexed in faith, but pure in deeds, at last he beat his music out. There lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds uses this metaphor of a person learning to play a musical instrument, and it sounds terrible at first. But the more you practice, the better it gets. So that's the same thing as coming to faith. You have doubts and questions, and as you beat it out, you will come to real faith. And he says, there's more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. People, we can say amen, we can know what we're supposed to say, we can know the doctrines, but it doesn't mean that we believe it. But somebody who has honest questions and is honestly asking and seeking real answers has real faith. Two amens. Okay, let's keep reading in the poem. He fought his doubts and gathered strength. He would not make his judgment blind. He faced the specters of the mind. That means ghosts or spirits. He faced the specters of the mind and laid them. Thus he came at length to find a stronger faith his own, and power was with him in the night, which makes the darkness and the light, and dwells not in the light alone, but in the darkness and the cloud, as over Sinai's peaks of old, while Israel made their gods of gold, although the trumpet blew so loud. So he continues this metaphor of a person learning to play a musical instrument, and fighting through that and learning it as in fighting through our doubts and gathering strength in our faith until it's beautiful music. Are you with me? Okay. Honest doubt is the friend of faith because faith has to be based on truth and truth welcomes the investigation of honest doubt. You can ask real questions. Josh and I were talking about this, and on Thursday he said something that struck me. I asked him if I could quote him. He said, doubt and unbelief are not the same thing. 
Unbelief is refusing to believe. I refuse to obey. I will not investigate. I won't think. I won't learn. I won't submit. I won't obey. That's unbelief. Doubt is, honest doubt is, uh, I'm not quite convinced, but I'm willing to be. Teach me. I want to know the truth. I want, if it's true, I want it. I just need to think about it. I need to meditate on it. I need to ruminate in it a little bit. Honest doubt desires faith and truth. But it's examining evidence and listening to the testimonies and what do I really believe? What is really true? I don't want cliches. I don't want fake religion. I want real. Unbelief is stubbornness. I'm not going to obey. I'm not going to believe. I just don't care what's right and wrong. I believe what I believe and I don't care. That's unbelief. That's bad. But honest doubt is not a lack of faith. Having questions of God or other people is okay as long as you are truly seeking the truth. Asaph in Psalm 73 says the same thing happened to him. This is an abbreviated version of Psalm 73 written by Asaph. Surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. They are free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. They clothe themselves with violence. They sin without caring about their victims. The evil of their minds knows no limit. In their arrogance they oppress. Does God know? Does the Most High have knowledge of this? Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been troubled. I am anxious every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? On earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell all of your deeds. Asaph lists three complaints. There are evil people getting away with what they're doing. There are people who have hurt me and God didn't stop it. And I have prayed to God and he hasn't answered. Anybody recognize any of those three complaints? Uh Uh-huh. And is God even there? And he said, my heart was bitter and I almost stumbled. I almost quit believing. He admits it was selfish on his part. It was offense in his own heart, either jealousy of other people. Why am I trying so hard? All it does is give me trouble and make me anxious. They seem to be doing whatever they please and getting away with it. Anybody ever wondered about that? (laughs) Yeah, I do. Yep. And uh, God, you're not answering my prayers. And uh, God, um, there's some people who've hurt me and you didn't stop it. And he said, I almost, I almost stumbled. I almost gave up. But then I went to your sanctuary. And I worshiped you and I saw. You notice God didn't answer his questions. He just gave him faith. 
Hello? He says, I, I went to your sanctuary and, and then I saw. I saw that you are faithful, that you will bring justice. And who do I have in heaven besides you? I don't need anything else. I'll be all right. So I'm going to go out on some really thin ice for a pastor here, and I'm going to tell you that I am in the same club as Lewis and Tennyson and Asaph. Maybe none of you, but I have moments when I wonder if my entire life is a sham. If, if is the whole thing made up, am I preaching fraud? Is God there at all? Is, is it even real? I have those moments. It's not any recurring battle that I have to fight, but in fleeting moments, I wonder because I am a thinker and I, I do want the truth. I want to know what is real and I, I don't want emotional manipulation and I don't want cliches and I don't want religion. I want reality. So in fleeting moments, sometimes I have thoughts or feelings that pass through me like, what do I really know? What do I really believe? I mentioned years ago, one time I was driving home from LeGrand, and, and I just in a half a second, it did not last any length of time at all, but a half a second I had the thought and all of the feelings that go along with it, of what if Jesus isn't returning? And it was terrifying. I, felt, I think it was not satanic temptation. It was, I think it was a gift of God. I felt what it felt like to not have faith. It was terrifying to not have faith. I, I have questions uh, that God has never answered. I have prayer, things I've prayed about that I don't know. So maybe this will only speak to some of you, but I got so many thank yous after first service, I'm going to guess it's most of us. We're all in the same boat. But what do you do with faith when you don't have any faith? What do you do when there's hurts that aren't healed, when there's dreams that haven't come true, when there's questions that haven't been answered and there's prayers that don't seem to be heard, when the world seems close or maybe even attractive and it seems like I'm missing out on some things that would be really great to have. Like Asaph said, why, why am I keeping my hands clean when everybody else is getting away with what they're doing? Why am I fasting and tithing and forgiving and waiting on God? Maybe you have intellectual doubts. Why should I trust God? Why, can I, why should I surrender to something I can't see? If you identify with any of those questions, I'm not here to answer them. <laughs> I'm just here to tell you where I've been and what has, what has stabilized me in the moments and the questions and the doubts and things. And I'm not even going to use the Bible because, oh, well, I am a little bit, but, but I'm talking about when, you, when we really get down to where I don't know if God is hearing my prayer, I don't know if God is there, and uh, I'm not, I, I read my Bible and nothing's happening. I, I want to go to clear to the bottom. <laughs> Just like, what do we do with faith when we're in one of those moods where, where C.S. Lewis says, uh, it, it seems like maybe the whole thing is terribly improbable. I just want to tell you what I do. It may not be at all the same for you, but there are some things that I come across in my mind and in my feelings, I guess, that help me, that stabilize me, that produce faith when I've run out of faith. And it's a totally random list. We're not in any order. Really, one doesn't follow another. It's okay. You can hang with me. All right? Something that I have thought in 
the past, when I have had moments of wondering, is there a God? Is it real? What can I know for sure? One thing that settles me is existence, the creation, the world, the universe we live in, from the stars to atomic physics. What God created, Romans 1 says, displays who he is, but it's too real and it functions too well, at a scientific level I mean, it functions too well to be an accident. The fact that anything exists at all is proof that God is there. Because evolution is so intellectually inviable, I could never ever believe it even if I was an atheist. I understand why in Charles Darwin's day people were fooled by it, but we have learned so much about subatomic physics and biology. There are trillions of chemical reactions going on in your DNA and RNA right now as you sit there that Darwin knew nothing about and it can't it can't happen one piece at a time. It all has to be there at the exact same moment or it doesn't work. From electrons to supernovas, it all has to be there at the exact same time, just like the Bible says. Uh, there's a retired EOU professor that lives here in town. He was a physicist. And he said uh, years ago, he said, there are a few biology professors that are atheists, but there are no atheists in the physics or chemistry departments because we know it has to have been designed. He said, they're not necessarily all Christians, but they are not atheists. We know there is a God because chemistry and physics are impossible without creation. It did not happen in slow motion over bajillions of years. It has to be designed. So creation, the world, the existence of anything, proves to me there's God even when I'm upset with him. Because that's really what it is. Religiously, there's no other option. Islam is so wicked, I could never join them. Buddhism is very uncaring. Hinduism is hatefully judgmental and racist. Mormonism is laughable. There's no other option besides Christianity. Another thing that I've never ever doubted or questioned is that there is a spirit world. I know that may be something that is a major doubt for some of you. So again, I don't say that all of this matches, but I totally believe in witchcraft and occult and miracles and power and healings and life after death experiences. And I don't mean that I believe everybody's stories about them, but I, absolutely, I believe most of them. And that they're there and that it's real. And, and dreams, I have lots of really powerful dreams. Some of them I don't understand and some of them I do. I wake up knowing what it meant. There's a dream world. I don't know what that means, but I know it's real. I'm not at all a materialist like this world is all there is. I I have no problem at all believing in a spirit world and an afterlife. So that helps in the rough moments. Again, a totally random list. But another thing, another reason why I can never move away from faith in God, even when I have moments of temptation, is that the modern world is so revoltingly ugly. I don't want to be part of this world. It's, It's so terrifyingly broken and unhopeful. Jesus is the only hope for the future. The world without ancient morality and ancient mythology and ancient religion is a sterile, ugly, meaningless, hopeless place. It really is. 
I can't believe any optimism for the future because we now in 2018 are the optimistic hopes of the people 100 years ago. How'd that turn out? Seriously, they thought, you know, in the future we're going to have flying cars and we're going to cure all the diseases and have instant communication and, you know, we have meth and opioid epidemics and we have open abortion and homosexuality and we have to tell teenagers not to eat laundry soap. We, if we are the glorious future of 100 years ago, I have no hope for 100 years from now outside of Jesus Christ. I mean, there is no hope. It's, it, all each generation does is take the sins of the previous generations further. They're not new sins. They're just to a greater extent. That's all we do. We make the same mistakes to a greater extent. There has to be more to this life than this life. There just has to be. Another thing, another reason I could never become an atheist is because so many of them are so hateful. You go to the comments sections online and, and they're, they're just, the vitriol and the ignorance is shocking and the hypocrisy and the self-righteousness of people who think they can be good without God. They are the modern day Pharisees. They really are to claim that they have righteousness, but they don't want God. I see through that, and I could never join them. Another thing, and they may find this rather contradictory, but it's not in me anyway. When I am doubting God or his work in my life or my own testimony, and God, what are you doing, and are you even there, and is it real? When I have those moments, and again, they're just flashes of moments. It's not something I deal with for days on end but it recurs. One of the things that helps me a lot is I believe the testimonies of the people in this book. And for some reason, I don't know why, but particularly two people that their story means so much to me is Joseph and Mary. Mary had everything to lose by telling the truth. If she's not a little virgin girl who's got pregnant by the Holy Spirit, why would you make that up? I mean, she, and Joseph, the fact that he was going to divorce her means he knew it wasn't his. Her pregnancy was not his. And then he says, well, an angel came and told me that this is the Son of God and I am to marry her. And then he did. And in their world, he would have lost all reputation and all dignity. He lost everything. By mar- in fact, you know they did because when they went to his hometown, they didn't have a place to stay. His family wouldn't let them through their front door. He lost everything by staying with Mary. And he says, this is true. This is the way it happened. He is the son of God. And all of the apostles died for what they said about the resurrection of Jesus. That matters to me. That tells me that they they know what they're talking about. That it's the truth. And Paul went from being murderer Saul to apostle Paul. Something changed him. He saw something. He met somebody. That matters to me, even when I don't feel like God's doing anything in my life. As in the words of Bill Johnson, think on what God is doing, not what he isn't doing. And that's, that's true. He may not be fixing my situation today the way I want, but I, I know some stories. And it does matter, and it is real. And it does help. You know, there are 
atheists and unbelievers who claim, well, the apostles just made up the stories about Jesus. And yes, Jesus was real and he was really crucified, but they made up the miracles and they made up the fact that he claimed to be Jesus or the son of God. And they made up the fact that he resurrected from the dead. And Andrew Schlafly says, if Jesus didn't create the apostles, who did? I want to follow that man because the apostles were some awesome people. The, the early church, you read the book of Acts, they, they were full of power and love and they had the best ideas in the history of the world. If it wasn't Jesus, then we better find out who it was. Slafly says, if, if the early church created Jesus, if Jesus is fictional and the, the apostles just made them up, then who made them? That's who we ought to be following because they were awesome, powerful, great people who literally changed the world. The stories are too too perfect. They have to be true. There's no other there's no other option. So I got three more and these are by far the most important to in my heart, in my mind. Another again random order but another thing that matters to me is my hope for justice. And I have no hope for justice outside of the return of Jesus Christ. I don't mean just justice in my own life, but justice for everyone. Justice for everyone I know personally and justice for everyone that has ever suffered anything. I want it made right. And in in Islam, you have to be perfect and please God. In Buddhism and Hinduism, you have to be perfect and achieve separation from it all and good karma. And And Christianity is the only one that says, uh, we all know you can't do it and there's a savior. And he is going to come and make it right. So many people trip over the bad stuff that happens in the world and they say, well, if God is real and good like you Christians claim, then these bad things wouldn't happen in the world. War and poverty and rape and slavery and all this stuff. And, or where was God when that tragedy happened to me? Or why didn't he stop that bad thing from happening? And that's the major thing most people trip over in accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior and believing and embracing Christianity. But really, that's the opposite direction we're supposed to go. The Bible says that the reason that stuff happened is because somebody sinned. It's not God's fault, it's our fault. But instead of blaming God, the gospel is that he loves us and he's our Savior and he's coming to make it all right. He is our rescuer from this tragic life. So Christianity is, the gospel is, choose to forgive now and wait in faith for real justice. I have no faith in any justice system. I have no faith in history or the future. I can only have faith that, the, that this book is right and that Jesus is going to return and make it all right. I'm looking forward to Judgment Day because he will make it all right. It will all be settled. Justice is a very deep and powerful cry of my heart and something I very strongly desire and my the only place to find justice is in Jesus Christ. It's the only place. Something else that settles my heart if I have a bad day or questions or doubts come flying in, as C.S. Lewis said, it's a mood. Really, something very important and very powerful is the fact that I know you. Your faith builds mine. The fact that I know your story 
and I, I don't know most of you before you became a Christian, but some of you, but, but, the, but I know your stories. And I know that Jesus is real because he changed your life. Even when I feel like he isn't changing mine the way he needs to be. I know your story, and I know what he did in you, and that is massive encouragement. Like, I can't quit. I know thousands of people whose lives are completely changed, set free from drugs or rage or sex addiction and wicked, evil, terrible stuff, healed from horrendous stuff that was done to them, and they're loving and forgiving today. Like, that has to be real, because that don't happen by accident. And it doesn't happen in our strength. We tried. Did we not? Yeah. Your hope, your joy, your love. The drastic and shocking changes in your life. The joy and hope that you have really does encourage my faith. There's an older man in the church who got born again maybe close to 10 years ago. And he was so excited He's smiling and he's hugging me over and over again. And he said, I'm just an old logger and I can't stop smiling and hugging men. (laughs) I didn't do that before. It's real. It's real. Doesn't matter how I feel today. I know that guy and I know it was real. Our collective faith can be a huge boost to our individual faith. And then lastly, and probably the most important, is that the thing that grounds me is that forgiveness is the most beautiful message in the history of the world. Forgiveness is the only way to have any future at all. In fact, I said that first service and I said, if you meditate on that the rest of the week, you will just barely scratch the surface that forgiveness is the only way to have a future. Just this service, second service during worship, I saw something I hadn't even thought of or saw while I was preparing this or even when I preached it the first time, that forgiveness is the only future there is. If we don't forgive, we're stuck in the present forever. The only way to move forward is to forgive. It's literally true that forgiveness is the future, and the future is forgiveness. There is no way to move forward without forgiveness. And I know that I desperately need forgiven. If God doesn't forgive me, I have no hope whatsoever. None. So I throw myself at his mercy, and I obey what he says, knowing that the same thing that Paul said, if Jesus Christ is not alive, then we have no hope. I have no hope other than forgiveness. And since forgiveness is the most difficult thing there is, it is the most valuable and the most real thing there is. I know you know what I'm talking about. It is the most difficult thing. The stuff that's cheap and easy and convenient and quick is throwaway. The stuff that we have to dig and work and push and pray and sweat and I can't do this without the help of God. That stuff is real. Forgiveness is the most valuable, the most real, because, precisely because, it is the most difficult thing to apprehend. And the fact that I need it, and the fact that it is 
the only hope for a future in our individual lives and us collectively as humanity and in eternity. It is the only hope for a future is forgiveness. And the fact that it is so beautiful, it has to be real. It it does. It has to be real. So there are four billion of us alive right now that have said, yes, Jesus is Lord. He is Savior. He is alive. And he is soon returning. Four billion. Did you get that? Ken was the only one that said yes. Did you get You are one of four billion people alive right now that says, yes, I am a Christian. I believe that Jesus Christ is real. He is the Son of God. And he is my Savior. To very, very extensive commitment. I understand that. But four billion people say yes to Jesus. That's a big collective faith. Yeah? Yeah. He's real. He's alive. He's the Lord and Savior, and he is soon returning. So I want to ask you, if you're here this morning and you've never said yes to Jesus, if you've never finally surrendered your will, maybe you are very excited to do it, or maybe like C.S. Lewis, it is just a decision that you need to make even though he didn't want to. (laughs) I see that it's real and it's true. I want to talk to you right now. I want you to come up and I want to pray with you, not in front of everybody, but just right now. Come up and I want to pray with you. I want to introduce you to my Lord and Savior. He's real and he loves you and you are forgiven. Those of you who've made that decision before, I want to ask you, are you living in such a way that your life encourages other people's faith? When somebody else is having a doubtful, down, discouraged day, when they think of you, do you build their faith? Get that basket off your candle and shine. Lord Jesus, we love you, we bless you, we put our faith and our trust in you right now today, Lord. Thank you for showing us that our mood swings and our emotions and our doubts and questions do not separate us from you. They don't cancel out our faith. Lord, we do have questions, and you may answer some or you may not, but we choose faith right now this morning, that you are there, that you are listening, that you love us, that we are forgiven that you do know every detail of our life, and we surrender to you now, Lord. We ask you for forgiveness. We ask you for salvation. We give you our heart and our life. We make you our Lord and our Savior. We say yes to your invitation, and we say yes to your command. Lord, we forgive so that we may be forgiven and move into your glorious future and the hope of your salvation. Lord, I bless each person here. May they leave with encouragement and hearts full of joy and hope and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.